Good morning, beloved. And everybody online in your jammies with your coffee, just sitting back and relaxing. It's good. We're going to continue our series on spiritual conflict. And as we just saw on the bumper, it's one of those components where most of us are not quite sure about this invisible, imaginary enemy that a lot of people talk about. But the Bible speaks clearly about it, that Satan is a clear and present danger. And we want to be able to get into God's Word. Uh, in the first service, I kind of went over a little bit. I thought I was teaching a Bible school class at OSB, but I'm not. So I'm going to have to do some culling as we go along here. If you have a Bible, just turn to Genesis chapter 3, or you can tap on your phone. It gives us the backdrop. And we looked at the very beginning of Genesis 1, and what we saw was that this ball of water in the midst of the universe was void and dark and without any life on it. And then God begins to speak into it, and he separates the waters, and over a period of six days, he creates the heavens and the earth, makes a place suitable for man to dwell. And then we go into chapter 3, and we're introduced to a serpent that talks, that seeks to deceive Adam and Eve, and a problem results. Sometimes our biggest question is, where did Satan come from in the beginning? And that's what we're going to talk about today, because as the created order is, is moving and taking shape, there is an angelic realm. There is worship already going on in the presence of God. And so in Genesis chapter 3, it outlines what has taken place as this serpent makes himself known. He at one point was invisible and then becomes visible. Genesis 3, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So keep in mind, he's a created being. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman replied to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she's aware of what God has said to Adam, and Adam has relayed that to her, and they're both fully aware of the command of God at that moment in time. What they are not aware of is what evil really is, and they will be introduced to that very quickly. Scripture says, the serpent said to the woman, you won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Something happened instantly. And the Bible tells us right after that not only were their eyes opened, they knew they were naked. The covering of God and the glory of God on their life was gone. The lights went out. Scripture says that they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves a loincloth. So they're hiding. They're trying to cover themselves up. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. 
How many know they had never hid, hidden themselves in the past? They always enjoyed the fellowship with God in the cool of the day. But sin will make you hide from God. Sin will push you away from his presence that is meant to be intimate in your life. And the scripture goes on to say that the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. I was naked, so I hid myself. And the Lord said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So as soon as you get found out with something, the blame starts being shifted. And so what does he do? He said, well, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, she's to blame. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. So I'm not to blame. You created all these creatures. You created the serpent. So God, you're to blame. And the Lord says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go the dust of the earth you shall eat. So it's a natural symbol of a spiritual truth that if you're out in the field and there's a snake in the field it, you can't see it it's pretty slithery and comes upon you in a way that uh, takes you by surprise we don't want to be surprised as believers we want to know what God says and where he came from and all of that and then you go down to verse um, 18 the earth will be thorns and thistles now, and it's going to be tougher than it's ever been before. You're going to have to really work by the sweat of your brow. And it goes on in verse 20. The man called his wife Eve because her name means life-giving. And the Lord God made Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. From this point on in the story, what you're going to realize is that God has a plan. He's working his plan. He says everything's good. Say good with me. Everything is good. But when this serpent shows up and causes Adam and Eve to deceive themselves and to betray God and rebel against him, because sin is rebellion, and to rebel against God, then there's a consequence. Because God had said to Adam, the soul that sins shall die. He didn't know what death was at that point in time. So maybe took it for granted a little bit. So when they do what they do and they find themselves now naked, God has to do something. He's going to banish them from the garden. He's going to put a flaming sword at the entrance so they can't go back in lest they touch the tree of life and live eternally in a lost state. So the goodness of God kicks in, puts them out of the garden, but as they are going, a prophecy unfolds. An animal is slain, its blood is shed, its skins are removed and placed upon Adam and Eve. That even in their sin and even in the midst of their consequence, God cares for them. Why? Because God is good. You need to tuck that in your heart and have that in your heart as we go through this talk. Because it is the purpose of the enemy to discredit the character of God. To make him seem like he doesn't care, especially when you're going through tough times. To make it seem sometimes that he is absent. 
not present in your situation, and he'll cause your heart to get all muddled in emotions where you'll say, God, you don't really care. Where were you? Why did you let this happen? And the next thing you know, he gets you all mixed up and you're struggling with the goodness of God. And so let's take it back then a little bit. I will take three or four scriptures right now and show you that before creation, there was an angelic realm and Satan was one of the, he was called Lucifer. There's only three cherubs, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And Lucifer was the anointed cherub. Worship, glory of God, and the presence of God was his domain. And Isaiah chapter 14 says it this way. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high God. In his heart, pride. He wants what God is receiving, and that's worship. And so you'll see this as it starts to unfold all the way through the Scriptures. Ezekiel 28, verses 14 and 15, describe him as you were, past tense, the anointed cherub who covers. I placed you there, God said. You were on the holy mountain. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So sometimes we ask the question, where did sin come from? Sin is rebellion, and it comes from inside the heart. It comes from wanting something that maybe you're not entitled to, and you overstep your boundary. When you learn to submit to God and walk in love and know that he has his best for you, if you feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, no, not, not now, then you just relax. And you just say, Lord, I trust you. You'll bring together everything that's needed when it's needed. But when you rebel, you try to make it happen. And this is what this anointed cherub does. Unrighteousness is found within him. And the scripture says from that point on, in his rebellion against God, Jesus later says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Just like that. Removed from the presence of God. When you understand the angelic realm and they sin, they're removed. In your life and in my life, when we sin, God draws us closer so that we can be forgiven and we can be restored and God can work in our hearts and bring us back to himself. Revelation 12 gives us another example. We go from the starting of the book to the very end of the story, and 12.9 says, The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent. So this example, this serpent in the garden, is the same as when we watch a rainbow in the sky, that it's an example of something. It represents something. And so Satan uses the serpent to get at Adam and Eve. And for them at that point in time, everything was perfect, everything was beautiful, everything was created by God, and so there was no issue in their heart until they start listening to what it is that he's saying. And all of a sudden, spiritual conflict comes. Because God said this, now you're saying that. God told me not to do this, and you're telling me it's okay. God is going to bless you with everything, and now Satan says, but 
He's going to withhold some things from you and create in them a desire for something that they don't have. And so the, the, the serpent is called the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Even Job talks about it in chapter 1, verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along also. So when we kind of step back and we see all of these things through the Scripture, we realize that even Satan is part of God's plan. We don't fully understand why and how, but what the Word of God does is give us some pointers on his character and his M.O., how he acts, and what his intent is towards God and towards the people that God loves. In Job, Job is described as righteous and blessed, and Satan challenges God when he stands before God and he says, yeah, Job only loves you because you bless him. He only loves you because of all the things you've given to him. Take some of that stuff away and he'll curse you right to your face. And what does God do? He says, go ahead, try it. But there's a leash on you and you cannot take his life. So all of a sudden you realize that in your life and my life, when attacks come, the enemy has a leash on him. And God allows only so much, and what that does is that strengthens us, encourages us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, to know how to resist the devil, and that he will flee from us, so that you have confidence in God. And so Job gets attacked. I mean, he loses his family, he loses his possessions, everything is a mess, he's sick, he's full of boils, and he's sitting... And his wife says to him, why don't you curse God and die? I mean, no, it's easy when you're going through a tough time to say, God, you don't care. And the enemy is quick to put thoughts in your mind, in your heart, in your life, that he doesn't care about you. And so you agree with that. Next thing you know, you're saying stuff that shocks you. And then you learn. Job decided at that moment when he said to his wife, I will never curse God. I remember years ago during the Pensacola Revival, Steve Hill was the evangelist and just phenomenal things God did through his heart and life. And then he got sick and he was dying and he was in agonizing pain. And his daughter said to him, Daddy, why don't you just get mad at God and curse God? And he said, oh, no, honey, I will never do that. He has been too good to me all the days of my life. Has he been good to you? Have you gone through tough times too? Absolutely, but you're still here. You've come out the other side. And that's the God that you and I serve. He's going to prove that the enemy does not have power over us unless we give it to him. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But there's this accusation that comes, and then Job responds the way God entrusted him to respond, and then we learn that John 10.10 10 tells us the thief. That's what Satan is called, a thief. And he comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. But God has come that you and I might have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. So when you are in relationship with Jesus, you see the fruit of that relationship as his abundance and his provision and his peace and his joy and his righteousness is applied to your heart and life. 
But before you came to Christ or even after you came to Christ, if you submit yourself to the enemy, you're going to see the fruit that comes from that relationship too. I said last week, I'll give you 35 names of the devil, so let me do it. And as I read through these names, I want you just to realize that's part and parcel of what the Bible says is the characteristic of Lucifer, who was a, an anointed cherub, who became Satan, a fallen angel, and this is how he reacts to God and to God's people and everything God loves. He's called Abaddon, the destroyer, the accuser, the adversary, an angel of light, an angel of the bottomless pit, Antichrist, Apollyon, or destroyer, a beast, Beelzebub, Belial, meaning wicked, deceiver, destruction, again in Hebrew, Abaddon, the devil, the dragon, the enemy, the evil one, the father of lies, a fallen angel, the king of the bottomless pit, the lawless one, Leviathan, which is serpent, a liar, he's Lucifer, murderer, power of darkness, prince of the power of the air, ruler of the darkness, ruler of this world, small g, God, Satan, serpent of old, son of perdition, fallen star, tempter, thief, and wicked one. That's who he is. That's his character. And so if we wanted to give a character reference for your life and we listed all of those things, people would say, I'm staying away from that person. I don't want any of those characteristics coming my way. That's the invisible realm that becomes visible through the knowledge of God's Word. He does not want us to walk around unawares of what it is that the enemy is doing because spiritual conflict is real. This is not imaginary. This is real. We share the planet with people from all over the globe but we also share a spiritual world all around us. I'm going to give you the three battlegrounds. So in case you fall asleep, you'll at least tuck those in your heart. First one is your mind. That's the very first battleground that the enemy likes to use. He wants to get at your thought life because as a man thinks, so is he. So whatever's going on in your mind, whatever is central to your mind, that is your CPU. That is your processor. Garbage in, garbage out. God's Word in, God's Word out. Knowledge of Scripture, knowledge of Scripture. Your mind is central. The Bible tells us to eventually have it renewed. 1 John 2.16, in reference to what we've said already to this point, all that is in the world... The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the enemy is going to use our passions, he's going to use our cravings, and he's even going to use our pretense that we're better than others. And that is going to cause a bit of a turbulence to go on in our spirit unless we know how to fight the good fight of faith and come out the other side. So our mind is always his first target. And because it is the first target, um, you're going to find yourself struggling sometimes with thoughts. Um, sometimes we call it self-talk. There's a lot of things going on inside your head. Uh, have you ever noticed that sometimes? And other times there's nothing going on in there? 
But as soon as you do something for God, you're going to get attacked. He's going to go after your thought life. He's going to tell you it's not real. This is just a fairy tale. This is people believing some kind of spooky stuff. But the scriptures are absolutely clear. They are evidenced always through scripture, geographically, archaeology, uh, places, people, villages, towns, rivers are all noted throughout the scriptures so that you and I can have absolute confidence that what God has done successfully in the past with generations, he will do the same in our generation. So you get that built into your mindset and you're able to then fight. The second area is when you're dealing with your heart, the seat of your emotions. Uh, Jesus made it very clear that what comes out of the heart are the issues of life. Also, Proverbs 4 says, keep your heart, guard it, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Or your emotions, those things that stir you, your passions, your intensity as an individual, your personality that comes out. And the enemy wants to take that and use that against you. Remember when Satan put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. If you back that story up a moment and you think Judas had the opportunity personally called by Jesus, invited to be part of the 12, to walk with Jesus every single day. How many know that Jesus was the best leader, the best shepherd, the best pastor, the best miracle worker, the best teacher, the best of the best of the best, and Judas got to walk with him every single day, and yet the enemy put it in his what? In his heart. There were areas of a life that he had not submitted to God, and that's where he goes to the high priests of those days, and he says to them, I will give you this Jesus of Nazareth. And they said to him, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver if you betray him. And he betrays him with a kiss. And 30 pieces of silver would be $600 today. Think about it. Judas was willing to forfeit his eternal joy in the presence of God for 30 pieces of silver. That's an attack that comes. That's something that happens in his heart, and he doesn't take his thoughts captive, doesn't take his passions captive, and the next thing you know, out of his mouth, he's making a deal with the devil to betray Jesus. And all Jesus has done is pour good into him all the days of his life. So Scripture says in the heart of Jesus, it would have been better that that man would have never been born to have done what he did. And so you see that this is a real war. There's something going on here that's incredible. And so Adam and Eve did the same thing. They didn't guard their mind. And Satan sowed doubt, didn't guard their emotions. They looked at the tree and they thought, well, come on, it's really good fruit and it's great for food and I'm going to have a bite on it. It's not that bad. And as soon as you start trying to make a deal with the devil, he's wiser than you. He's wiser than me. He's got a lot more experience at deception that you and I will ever have. That's why you have to stay faithful to God's word. And so he stirred them up. And next thing you know, they choose rebellion and they allow Satan to sow doubt in them and stir up desire and then ultimately 
to make excuses and lie to God. The last area is our mouth. How many know the Bible says, the tongue no man can tame? You ever tried to tame your tongue? I think there is something about being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. I really do. Because the Bible says in Jude, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. So when you're attacked and you say, I do not know, I don't have wisdom to know what to do here, and you begin to pray, and you just open your heart to God, what are you doing? You're taming your tongue, you're stilling your mind, you're causing your emotions to align to God. He says, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. And so that's one of the tools that you and I have to be able to do what we need to do. James says, no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So you think about it. You're in the church. You're worshiping God. Everything's wonderful. You're having a great experience. And you get out in the parking lot, and somebody cuts you off. And they're not getting off the parking lot fast enough. And you're in a hurry. What starts coming out of your mouth? I bless you. I bless you. I don't think so. I think we just get crabby, and we let it come out of our mouth. That's where these things that I'm talking about today when we understand that the enemy attacks our minds, when we understand he attacks our emotions, and when we understand that he uses our mouth to praise God and then to curse people, we know this battle is real, and I can't just be a spectator in the house of the Lord and just go through a service and say that was really good and then continue to live the same way I've been living. I need to say every time I come into the house of the Lord, Lord, correct me today. Adjust me today. Speak to my heart today. What's going on in my life today that you need to get a hold of? Because I'm in a war, Lord, and I don't want to lose this battle. I want to come out of this on the other side, praising you for all eternity. I don't want to get waylaid along the way and then become unfruitful in my whole journey. I want to stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, you made a good investment in me because everything in my heart was to serve your purposes with my life. Every single day, no matter where I go, I want to serve your purposes, and I want to be fruitful in sharing the Word of God with other people. But I also want to model it in such a way as people see I have a mind that's at rest, I have emotions that are under control by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and that I have a mouth that they don't hear me cursing. Years ago, we went to Pakistan on a missions trip, and while we were in Pakistan, the car that we were in, it used to be uh, Musharraf, who was the prime minister at one time, it was his driver, and he drove us around with a guard in the back and a guard at the front, and we went all over Pakistan. And at the very last day when we were walking away from the house where we were staying and he was going to take us to the airport, he said, could I just say something to you? He said, you three have been in my country for over a week, and I have never heard you say one word against my country, not one word against Islam, not one word against the mosque. And he said, I want to say thank you. What did that demonstrate to him? That infidels, in his eyes, can also be honorable men and women. 
We can say things that build up, that don't tear down. And so in your life and in my life, we'll always have opportunities. How will we use our mouth? And sometimes it's just not your mouth, it's your keyboard. I mean, no social media and Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and all of these things now, you can be a real brave soul behind the keyboard because you're in the dark somewhere in your house. You're not sitting face to face with someone. And the enemy is using that even today to skewer our minds so that we don't really know how to check whether or not what we're passing on is true or not. And so your heart is like my heart. I don't want to cooperate with the devil in any way. I want to know what God's Word says, and I want to apply that to my life, and I want to keep filled with the Spirit, be strong in God, and be able to say, Lord, I understand that there is an ending, but I'm not going to give him any space in my life. And so you come to this place where you realize there's a moment in the Old Testament where the people of God have disobeyed the Lord, judgment has come on them, and they're all dying in the wilderness, and God says to Moses, I want you to get a pole, and I want you to put a serpent made of brass on the pole, and I want you to put it up in the midst of the people, and when they look to the serpent on the pole, they will be healed. And you go back to that and you think, Lord, what does that really mean? Well, what is Moses doing? He's lifting up in type Jesus Christ in the midst of it that what the cross is going to do is defeat the serpent. And the brass is always judgment. And so this judgment's going to come, this serpent is going to be defeated, and the people are going to be healed and are going to be restored. He did it naturally in the flesh so that he would do it spiritually in your heart and in your life. All through the Scriptures, these are the things that you and I see. And for us, even in Ephesians, it says in verse 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Aren't you glad? that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption to himself as sons through Christ according to the purpose of his will. Let me finish by saying something to you. Every single person outside of my life is not an enemy. Every single person outside of my life is a mission field. Jesus died for all 7 billion people on the planet. As crazy as they are, as evil as they are, as rebellious as they are, he has made a provision for them to come into his presence and be with him forever and forever. He has made that clear for thousands of years through the Scripture, through various stages in the Scriptures, so that you and I can know that we know that we know that not only is it true, but it's true for you and me too. We've come to receive him. And because we received him, we know now that we walk holy, we walk blameless before him. Not because of our righteousness, but because of his. And that allows us to enjoy every single day in the presence of God, and to be able to rejoice. Lord, you have made it clear that there's going to come a moment in time it's appointed for every man to die. Adam took 930 years 
after that event, before he eventually died. So everyone is going to die. Are you going to die in your sin, or are you going to die in Christ? The enemy wants you to die in your sin. He wants you to stay natural. He wants you to be locked into the ways of the world. He wants you to be just like everybody else. God comes along and says, I want you to be like my son. I want to conform you to the image and likeness of my son. I want to work in you in such a way as that when people see you, they see me at work, and they see a redeemed life and a transformed life and a changed life. They see a mind that's at rest and a heart that's at rest, and they hear out of their lips of the people that they're looking at, they're hearing blessing, not cursing. They're hearing people being built up, not torn down. They're hearing truth come out, which is contrary to culture. Are there some truths in the culture? Of course. Are there some truths in religions? Of course. But Jesus is the truth, the way, and the only life for you and I. And so when that is touched in our hearts, we realize, Lord, I want to walk with you. I'm going to finish with 1 Corinthians 6. This is a tough one, but I want you to listen to it because it is God's word to a generation that was out of the will of God in Corinth. Paul says to them in verse 9 of chapter 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's clear. Do not be deceived. So from the very beginning, what's the enemy's role? To deceive us, to mess with our mind, mess with our emotions, and mess with our mouth. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, anything outside the bonds of covenant marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, Paul says. But at this point in your walk, you're washed by the blood of Jesus. You're washed by the word of God. You are clean as clean can be. You were sanctified. In other words, you're set apart. Jesus said in John 17, set my people apart according to truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart. Sanctify them. And then you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means that you have a clean slate. You are righteous before God because of Jesus Christ. So you can feel all kinds of things that you've done in your heart and in your life and feel guilt for it, but God has set you free. He's washed you. He's sanctified you. He's justified you. And now you stand in his goodness. John 3, 3 says, unless one is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. Romans tells us the one trespass by Adam and Eve led to the condemnation of all men, but one act of righteousness by Jesus Christ leads to the justification and life for all men. For by one man's disobedient, many were made sinner. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Dust of the earth, Adam is created. 
God breathes into him the breath of life, he's eternal. Just like you are, the eternal. Then he sins, he's put out of the garden, and he dies. So in order for God to redeem the whole process, he had to come in the person of his son and die so that he could pay the penalty for sin. No human being could pay it because we're all sinners. But Jesus could because he's the sinless son of God. And that's why sometimes when you hear people say, ah, you're just going on about this Jesus all the time. There are lots of ways to God and lots of religions and, and get with the program. And you have to say to them, but you don't understand what's going on in the world. You don't understand the danger you're living in. That only one person, God himself, could pay the penalty for sin, which was death, and then be raised from the dead, never to die again, and then impart eternal life to all who will follow him. That's what you and I are up against, and that's what you and I enjoy. John 20 says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. And then Revelation, I'm coming quickly bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So when you read Genesis, you see rebellion, you see the entrance of sin, you see the curse being opposed, and then you see the beginning of death. When you read Revelation at the end of the book, you see a final rebellion, the exit of sin, the lifting of the curse, and the end of death. It's one complete story. And when you know the pieces of the story and you can put them together, then you can say in Revelation 22, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May his grace be upon all of us. And the whole church said... Amen. Let's stand together. If I was here another time and I took a box of puzzle pieces, a thousand pieces in a big box of a puzzle, and I showed you the picture on the box, and then I dumped all the pieces on the ground, what you would do is you would look at the picture and you would take the pieces and you would put them according to the picture. All the different color schemes and you would align that up. Did you know that most Christians, how they understand Christianity is the pieces are all on the ground and they don't know how they fit together. But I want you to know when you put your eyes on Jesus and you keep your eyes on Jesus, and you keep your mind fixed on him, and you keep your heart rooted in him, and you keep your mouth blessing him, it won't be long before all the pieces will start to be put together in such a way as that you'll say, I'm living a complete life in Christ. I'm not being tossed and turned and twisted all over the place. I know who I am in Christ, and I know who Christ is in me. Amen? Put your hand over your heart. Father, as we close off our time together, we thank you that you speak to us through your word because the entrance of your word brings light to our path.
And when the light shines, we're able to make the right decisions. And when we make those right decisions, you speak peace to our heart. And Lord, when we walk in peace, peace flows through our lips. And we want to thank you today that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual and they're mighty in God to the pulling down of every stronghold. And so, Father, thank you that on the minds of the brothers and sisters that are watching today, that are here today, you have put the helmet of salvation to protect them. You have put the breastplate of righteousness around their heart so that these two vital areas, the head and the heart, are protected from every device of the enemy. And then, Lord, you've touched the lips of all of us today, and you've put a guard on our lips that we do not cooperate with evil and we don't cooperate with the enemy but we seek to build up, to bless, to honor, to show respect. So, Lord, as we go into our week, remind us of these truths that enable us to be victorious. If you're watching online today or you're here and you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ, can I encourage you today, this is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Just say in your heart of hearts, Jesus, I need you. And I invite you into my life today because there is salvation in no one else. And I want to make the right decision. I don't want to go down the same road that Judas went. I want to go down the road that many others around me have done to serve Jesus with all my heart. And if you do that, God will honor that today in your life. Pastor Joyce.